Now, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians, we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 in our time in the Word this morning. Now, I hope, um, as a church, we've been walking through this book. I hope it's been beneficial for you to just kind of take a, a slow walk through this wonderful letter in which the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Philippi. Now, if you're using one of those Black Pew Bibles that are sitting around the room, it's on page 980. 980. And as I mentioned, we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 in our time this morning. <clears throat> now, and by the way, too, if you um, have not received one of these, it's basically a Philippian scripture journal. It's just a little journal that just has the book of Philippians in it. Um, this is one of the things that we like to just give away to people as we uh, walk through this book as a church. So if you do not have one of these, um, on, the, on the back table or counter right as you walk through the sanctuary doors, uh, there's a few of these left. I would encourage you to go ahead and grab one or stop by the connect desk. We should have some more there as well. But it's just our gift to you um, as we walk through this book together. But before I read for us our passage this morning, I want to just spend some time giving a quick little recap of where we have been because we're almost at the halfway mark of the book the halfway mark of the book of Philippians. Now, as a reminder, Paul is the author. As I mentioned, he's writing to a church. He's writing to the church in Philippi. That's why it's called the letter to the Philippians. Now, this church is a church in which Paul actually helped plant about 10 years prior to writing this letter. So it's a church that meant a great deal to him. Now, in case you're not familiar with the Apostle Paul, you have to know this about him, that he was not always an apostle. In fact, he was not always a pastor. Even more so, he actually wasn't even a Christian. He was actually a Christian terrorist. He was one of the early church's greatest enemies. He orchestrated the deaths of Christians um, more than anybody else during the first century. But... What happened then? What, then why then are we reading a book, right? reading this letter from this ex-Christian terrorist who has now been saved, been converted as a follower of Jesus, and now is writing this letter to try to build healthy churches? Well, it's because what happened to Paul is what happens to all of us, is Jesus decided to do something, that God decided to intervene in his life in a miraculous way, that he decided to reveal himself to Paul like he does to all of us. Now, for some of you, that might have come early, early in your life. Right? I've heard stories, you know, about that you, you know, you, you kind of knew who Jesus was when you were seven, eight years old. For some of you, I also know that it came later in life, right, when you were a grown adult. But yet what's true of whether you were young or old is that Jesus decided to intervene and reveal to himself exactly who he is, exactly who he is, that he was not just a good man. Not just a Jew, not just someone who happened to die an untimely death, but yet was God, God himself, that he was Lord. Now, if you are curious, you can read about uh, Paul's conversion specifically in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9, which we're not going to look at today, but I encourage you to take a look at his, his story. But ever since the day in which Paul had this this intersection with Jesus Christ, where he began to know who Jesus was. Paul has been on a mission. 
He's been on this mission to tell people about Jesus, to tell people about the gospel, to tell people about the good news. Because what Paul knew then, after interacting with Jesus, that the things in which he was striving his life after, right, his greatest accomplishments in, in work or in title or in ego, were no longer important to him. They were no longer the most important thing in his life. The most important thing in his life was now the one who had saved him, the one who had given up his life for him, this man, this God, Jesus. And so Paul has been preaching about Jesus, but not just about what he has done, but about who he is, about who he is. So in the midst of praying for this church in Philippi, in the midst of instructing them on how to have just, just a, a fruitful, unified time together as a church, he's going to be talking today in our, in our section in Philippians about exactly who is Jesus. Who is Jesus? These are some of the greatest words or greatest, greatest doctrine, if I could use that word, about the person and work of Jesus. Almost in all of the New Testament, what we see in these verses that I'm going to read in just a moment have been some of the most important verses that the church has looked at and relied upon and has been constantly going back to to fight heresy for almost 2,000 years. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful passage of Scripture. It's a wonderful passage of Scripture to know the God in whom you worship, Christian. And if you're not a Christian or you're not quite sure where you're at this morning, one, you're welcome here. Uh, we're going to try not to do anything weird to you. Um, you know, we're not going to call you. I'm not going to make you stand up if it's your first time. Uh, we simply, but we do want you to know this Jesus in whom the rest of us are gathered here to worship. And so if you are new or you are just kind of investigating the claims of Christianity, this is actually a really good week for you to be here. Because we're going to walk through Christology. That's the, the study of Christ of who is he? Why, why do we call ourselves Christians? This is a text in which is going to point us to that reality. But as always, I need help in that. And so I'm going to stop and I'm going to pray one more time and I'm going to pray for you and your reception of the word of God this morning. And as I'm doing that, can I ask that you would just pray for me? Just pray that I would be able to preach this um, to you in the way that God has designed for you to know him and understand him. So let's just go ahead and do that. Let's bow our heads and let's just pray for each other. Well, Father, I do want to just take a moment before we actually look at your word, just acknowledge that we need you. We need you desperately. Um, Holy Spirit, I need you to illuminate uh, the word for us this morning. I need you to illuminate the word for Everybody who's sitting in these chairs inside these walls, and even for those who are listening online, God, we know that it's only through your power, through your grace, through your mercy, that we can actually even truly understand anything that this book says. So God, I pray that you would just illuminate it for us this morning. Just allow us to see it for exactly what it is, that we'd be able to not read it just as a book, but read it as the word of God. God, I also want to pray for our kiddos and for our teachers. God, as, as they even just walk through the, the promises, the claims of Jesus, even in the classroom, even their little minds, Lord, that you would allow them to just to grow and to, to believe in you. God, we thank you for the opportunity and for entrusting those little hearts um, just to our, our teaching this morning. But God, we need you. We need you desperately. So we ask all of these things because you are mighty 
You are mighty to save, and you are mighty to reveal yourself. So in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so if you guys, hopefully you found your, that place in your Bible. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So let me go ahead and just read it, read it for us, and then we'll start walking through it. Verse 5. It reads, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Thanks be to God. Yeah, we are, we're thankful for God's word. That's why we say that. So we're thankful for God indeed. Now, as we read in verses 6 through 11, we see it's, it's all about Jesus, right? It's all about him. It's pointing to him. It's this great passage of scripture. You know, even most theologians actually refer to this section in the book of Philippians as a hymn of Christ or Christ hymn because it has so much clarity into who Jesus is. Or if you know Latin, which I don't, but I know a few phrases that I memorized this morning, theologians who often spoke in Latin, they would call this passage the Carmen Christi, right? The hymn of Christ. It's an important portion of scripture. Now, a helpful way to think about it, just so for you visual learners out there, a helpful way for you guys to think about this hymn is think about it in a V pattern. In a V pattern. That we're going to see Christ, who is highly exalted, who is, who is God, who is equal with God, but yet he is going to come down. He is going to humble himself to the lowest degree that a human can humble himself. But yet, we're also going to see him exalted back up to his rightful place. So as we walk through this text, think of it as that B pattern, where you see the exaltation of Christ, the humility of Christ, and then the exaltation of Christ again. But before we get into it, we have to look at verse 5, right? Because I read verse 5, that's part of the portion which we're looking at. And I think verse 5 actually gives us some very helpful context to why is this Christ him it here where where it is like why is it in this passage in this portion of this letter well let's look at verse five where paul says have this mind among yourselves which is yours in christ jesus now for those of you who have not been with us as we've been walking through the book of philippians we have seen paul point out that that one of the goals of every Christian, one of the goals of every healthy church is to live a life in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. And what we saw, what that means is simply to live a life that shows the worthiness of the gospel. Because you can't take away or earn the gospel. It's the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. But we are called to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, to show the worthiness of it. And so he's been talking about how we should, you know, count each other as more significant than ourselves, that we should value one another, that this is part of the banner of which we live under. And as we looked at verse 4 last week, and we saw that we're supposed to count each other as more significant than ourselves, I hope you saw that that's a pretty radical statement. That's pretty wild to our own ears. 
right? To think about others as more important than yourself is just as radical then as when Paul wrote it as it is now. You're saying I'm supposed to value other people more than I value myself? Yeah, that's what the Word of God says. But then how? How are you supposed to do that? How in the world can you possibly get to a place where that is something, that, not something that you just feel like you have to begrudgingly obey, but you deeply desire to do? That's where Paul goes. That's where Paul goes in verses 6 through 11, is giving us, this is how you do it. By taking your eyes and pointing them to somebody else. To pointing them to none other than the man, Jesus Christ. So let's look at this wonderful Christ hymn then. If, what, if this actually makes a difference to how we live our life, let's look at this in verses 6 through 11. But let's start at verse 6. When it says, Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Paul begins by saying, okay, when you're thinking about Jesus, when you're thinking about him, when you're thinking about his mind or the mind that you have in him, start with who he is. So he says, he was, though he was in the form of God, he was in the form of God, was being past tense. Paul is pointing out here, church, that Jesus is God. He was in the form of God. That, that word form in the Greek, it's the Greek word morphe. It, it basically is trying to communicate to us that this, was, this has always been true of Jesus. There wasn't a time when Jesus sin, somehow was, became God or he was a lesser God, but he was God. He was in the form of God. Or maybe a helpful way to think about it is when you think of a silhouette of God, think of a silhouette of God. If Jesus were to step in front of that silhouette, it would perfectly match because he is God. That there is no difference between the divinity of God and Jesus himself. That he was truly God. You know, Jesus would communicate the same reality to his disciples. And I want to show you this from John 14. When Jesus is talking to disciples because they were asking about, hey, when are we going to be able to see God, Jesus? This is what he says. Look at the screen. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You say, if you want to see God, you're, you're looking at him. You're looking at him. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, if you go back to that text in Philippians, then, this is what Paul talks about. Look at the next line. He's in the form of God, but he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Paul just mentions that he was equal with God. That there was no separation, that Jesus was not a lesser God, but he was truly God. Truly God. But the reason then why Paul is bringing up Jesus' divinity is for what? Is to show us, church, what did Jesus do with that? What did Jesus do with his divinity? What did he do as God? Well, it says that he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. A thing to be grasped. And it says that he did not 
in being not counting equality with God's thing to be grasped, that he emptied himself, or your translation might say, he made himself nothing. Now, both are good translations, but he emptied himself or made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. This is where we have to slow down. right? When, as, as I mentioned to you, a lot of people have use this passage a lot of good theologians have used this passage to fight against heresy for 2000 years but it's also been used to promote heresy too and so i want to go slowly through this because i think it's helpful for you guys to understand this so jesus who's truly god did not count equality with god something to be grasped now what does that mean what does it mean that he didn't count it something to be grasped or held on to or to be clinched in such a way well, think about it in this way, that Jesus, because he was truly God, he was, he was God from all of eternity, that there was nothing more that he could add to himself, that he had the highest glory, right? He had the, the highest recognition, the, the highest admonishment of the heavens, that there was nothing in Jesus that was lacking in his godness. Does that make sense? And what Paul is saying is that he had nothing but yet he did not hold on to that prestigiousness or that prestige when he decided to come to earth. Now, in what is known as the covenant of redemption between the Godhead. Now, we believe in one God who eternally exists as three different persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In eternity past, the Trinity, God, decided that they were going to save the world. That they were going to save mankind from its, their sin. And the only way that they were going to save mankind from their sin is Jesus saying, I am going to save them. I am going to become the sacrifice in which they need. And we'll look at that in a little bit. But it's called the covenant of redemption that was made in eternity past. Meaning that God knew what was going to happen. It wasn't like in the garden. He was surprised. Or when he looks at our lives and sees the way that we have rebelled against him, saying, I had no idea that was coming. But God knew. He actually knew before we were even born, but yet still decided in the covenant of redemption that, he was that Jesus was going to become that perfect substitute on our behalf. And the way that that was going to happen is that this God, Jesus, was going to take the form of a servant and be made in the likeness of men. So in what ways did then Jesus become nothing? Or what ways did he empty himself? It was that he took on humanity, that he became human. He added humanity to himself. Jesus, this is really important, church, Jesus never gave up his divinity. He was never less than fully God. But he added humanity to himself. That's what it means that by he emptied himself or became nothing. And the reason we know that is because that's what the text says. Look at verse 7. So he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. <coughs> Excuse me. So what, what verse 7 is saying then is that Jesus, when he decided to come, he did not decide to come grasping all of the prestige of being God. That he did not come as the high and mighty king in which he is. That he did not come with the royalties in which ultimate kingship has. Right? To be treated above all everybody else. Right? To have the, the royal red carpet rolled out in front of you. 
No, Jesus decided, no, no, I don't, I don't, I'm going to let go of those things. It's not going to take away my divinity or that I'm king, but I'm going to humble myself by being born in the form of a servant, by being born lowly. So he decided to be born lowly and humble, even so much that he would take on the identity of a slave. Not so he could be served like a king, but what does the scriptures tell us? So that he would serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I think the best way for me to illustrate this is just simply looking at the life of Christ again. I want to show you another passage of scripture from John 13. John 13. This is when the night before Jesus' death, during the Passover meal, where it was custom for a slave to wash the disciples' feet or wash the, the, the guests' feet as they dine. It was the, the lowliest job that somebody could have. It was reserved for slaves. For slaves. But look at this from John 13. What did Jesus do? It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So in this moment, church, did Jesus ever cease to be, prior, to be who he is prior to this moment? No, not at all, right? Jesus never ceased to be a rabbi in this moment. He never ceased to be a son. He never ceased to be God in this moment. But yet we see him take on the form of a servant and perform a servant or slave's duty, one that would humble himself. And this is also just as crazy, that Jesus would, would humble himself. Do you know, church, that People would not humble themselves in this culture. In fact, to be humbled was a sign of weakness. It was something that somebody else did to you, to, right, right, to put you in your place, to humble you. But yet, here we read that Jesus humbled himself. He emptied himself. Let's think about that. The most powerful man in all of the world, the most powerful man to ever walk this earth, decided to humble himself. For whose sake, church? For our sake. For our sake. And that's what we read. So what did Jesus do with this humility? What did he do with this humbling of himself? He used it for the obedience to God the Father. Because even though Jesus was fully God, truly God, he was born in the likeness of man. Not born of man. He, doesn't, he didn't have the same... Um, he wasn't born into sin like you and I are or have the same being prone to sin like you and I are. It doesn't take away that, that Jesus was truly human. He had the same temptations like we did, but yet the scriptures say that he was without sin. But what did Jesus do with his life is he was so obedient. He was obedient all the way, all the way. And that's why it says in verse 8 that he became obedient to the point of death. Now, <clears throat> we like at this church, and I think all gospel preaching churches do this, we focus rightly on the death of Jesus. Because at that moment when Jesus was right, put on the Roman cross, he was dying for our sins in our place. 
right? We, we celebrate that explicitly on, you know, days like Good Friday, where we remember the death of Jesus on the cross. And that's important, and we, we'll talk about that later on. But what can be missing sometimes is we fail to remember that the life of Jesus was just as important as his death. That the active obedience of Jesus was just as necessary as his death was. Let me explain it this way. If Jesus didn't live the life that you and I couldn't live, then his death on the cross would not have been an exchange for anything. But because Jesus lived a life perfectly, when he went to the cross, God the Father was looking at Jesus as if he had lived our life. And so that God then can look at Jesus or look at us as if we had lived the life that Jesus lived. That's that great exchange. But let's talk about the death, though, too, because that's important. Paul points it out that he was so obedient, even obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. Roman crucifixion was brutal. It was extremely brutal. In fact, it was pretty humiliating as well. It was one of the most, the worst ways to die in the first century. Do you know, church, that Rome, as brutal as they were, think of gladiator and tearing people from limb to limb, letting lions just eat them, eat people in front of them for entertainment. Even this culture decided, you know what, we're not going to crucify one of our own citizens. That's too far. Because to crucify somebody, to put them up on a tree, naked, shameful, exposed, for everyone to come and mock and look at, was even too much for Roman citizens to think about doing to one of their own. It was reserved for the lowliest criminals. It was reserved for the worst among society. But yet, this is the very death in which Jesus chose to to embark upon or to endure. Jesus tells us in, in another part in one of his Gospels that no one makes him lay down his life, but he lays down his life. So ultimately, Jesus was not put on the cross because the Roman soldiers nailed him there. Jesus was put on the cross because he wanted to be there. He wanted to be there because he wanted to be a substitute for sinners like you and I. So Jesus, who reigned in the highest degree, the angels worshipped him. All of creation worshipped him. All the way up here, plunged himself to the point that nobody else wanted to go to. No human wanted to bear the humility or the, the, the shame, right, the condemnation. Nobody wanted to be humble to that point. That's the bottom of the V that we're looking at, that he was obedient, even obedient to the point of death. But he was there for us. Let me show you this real quickly from 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake... He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus was plunged to the depths of our shame, our sin, our condemnation, so that we would never have to be on the day of judgment. That's the great exchange. You see, church, Christianity, this is really important, Christianity is not about what you do for God. 
It's not about just subscribing to some kind of moral philosophy or some kind of religious agenda about what you do for God so maybe God would be happy with what works that you have done by the time that you die. That's not Christianity. Christianity is not what you do for God. Christianity is looking and remembering and embracing what has God done for you. It's opposite. It's not about you climbing up to heaven. It's about how God climbed down to you. So we remember what Christ has done for us and who he is in the process. So God, who gave himself up, humbled himself for our sake. But since we're at the bottom of the V, where else is there to go? We're going to go up. Look at verse 9, church. This is so great. Therefore, because of what Christ has done, because of his humility, because of his humbling of himself, because he was perfect and he uses perfection to redeem and to atone for sinners like you and I, it says God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So was the substitutionary death of Jesus, was it accepted by God? Was the curse of sin brought upon us by our first father, Adam, and something we have partaken in every day since, was that accepted by God? Yeah, it was. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Even that word exalted, it's like skyrocketing up. It's like taking Jesus who died the death that we deserved and resurrecting him right back to his rightful place. He's exalted. He's exalted. And it says that the name is now bestowed on him, the name that is above every name. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, anyone who knew their Old Testament or, maybe, or, or, or any good Hebrew would have immediately started thinking about or connecting the dots between what Paul just said. Wait, you're saying the name that is above every name now belongs to Jesus? And, and what, what were they thinking about in that moment? Because what in the Old Testament, what is the name that's above every name? It's the name Yahweh. Yahweh. It's the proper name of God. The proper name of God of all of creation. In, in our English Bibles, usually it's translated a capital L-O-R-D, Lord, to communicate this proper name of God. And let me show you this <clears throat> from Isaiah 45. Where, where God is speaking about what he will do in the future. Let me read just a, a few verses to you. Where God says, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. Now listen to this language, church. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord, that's that proper name, it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who, are, who were incensed against him. You see the connection to our text? You see how Paul is using the language of the Old Testament, using the language of God, Yahweh, and then saying that the name that it belongs to, to the greatest person, the name in whom all worship, all allegiance should go to belongs to Jesus Christ. 
So every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what, church? Lord. Is Lord. <clears throat> and this will be true. This will be true. It'll be true of everyone. Remember, it says every knee, right? Every tongue will confess this. Not just the ones who have trusted in Jesus as their substitute. Now, hear me on this. Does it mean that everyone will be saved from the punishment of their sins? But it does mean that everyone will confess the name of Jesus as Lord. That day of confession is coming for us all. Now, in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, where John, who's the author of it, is given these images of what those last days will be like. He describes this scene in Revelation 5. And I want you to just bridge this gap between the Old Testament and the last book of the Bible. When John says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Church, do you see this? Do you see that every creature, including you and I, will confess the name of Jesus? We will confess his throne. It's not that we hope that it might happen. It says it will. So listen to me very carefully then. And bear with me. I did squat yesterday. I should not have done this. But every name will, or every person will bow their knee to King Jesus someday. Every knee will be bowed. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. But notice, notice this, is we can confess his name as Lord and Savior today. Because that day of judgment, right, that day of reckoning, that day of justice is not here this morning. And because on that day, church, the only confession you'll be, be able to make is that Jesus is Lord. But for many, you will not be able to ask him to be your Savior. It will be too late. That day has been come and gone. But that day is not here yet. That day of wrecking, that day of judgment is not here yet. And don't hear me as a fire and brimstone preacher. I'm trying to relate to you that the truth of the Bible is that we all want to confess that Jesus is Lord. But I'm saying confess him as Lord and Savior now. The one who was obedient on your behalf. The one who was obedient to the point of death on your behalf. The one who has humbled himself for your sake. Not because he needed anything. Not because he was trying to gain anything. He had everything. He was in the form of God. He was equal with God. But yet, he decided, I'm not going to hold on to that. I'm going to loosen my grip, and I'm going to come to you. To you. That's a gift. That's a gift that I simply want to remind you of this morning. That's Christology, church. That's the study of Christ. It matters. It matters for our day-to-day life. Remember the context in which we're reading this in. Paul is saying, 
in talking to this church about, hey, I don't want you to do anything out of rivalry or conceit or selfishness. These, these things that seem to plague every single church. Right? Rivalry, envy, right? Self-glory, conceit. Even when those things are present, what's the answer? What's the answer that Paul gives the church? Because I can tell you, I don't know if it's, think, if it's practical steps. I'm like, this is how you can not be envious, or this is how you can fight against rivalry. As far as just practical, this is up to you language. Paul says, you know what, you want to fight against those things? Have a big Jesus. Know a big Jesus. Because the reason why you might be doing those things, the reason why Christians struggle, the reason why Christians sometimes go off the rails, it's not because they don't know what to do. I've seen it enough. It's not because they don't know what to do practically. It's because usually Jesus has gotten this big in their life. So it's inconsequential. But when you have a big Jesus, and when you have a big Jesus and what you're focusing in on, all those other things will, will, will come on, alongside. They will follow through. The point is to cast your eyes on a big Jesus, a magnificent Jesus, a mighty Jesus, a Jesus who has humbled himself. To what end? Well, Paul says, to the glory of God the Father. <laughs> that's what Jesus was after, and that's what we can be after. So church, as we're, as we're walking through this, we're thinking still through, like, what does it mean to be a healthy church? What does it mean to be a church that lives in a manner worthy of the gospel? It shows the worthiness of the gospel. Maybe it's taking a moment, taking to step back and saying, I need a big Jesus to do that. A big Jesus is something that I want to live for because this big Jesus is the one who lived for me. I don't have to try to get anything out of him. Everything in which I ever wanted or desired He's already given to me. It's a whole different motivation. So before I pray, though, I think we need to have a moment. And, and this is going to be private. It's not going to be like corporate. But I, I want you all to be able to think through, am I, do I bend my knee to this? Do I bend my knee to this Lord? Right? Or am I buckling my knee to my own pride, my own self? The scripture's clear on what, what that will ultimately lead to. But here we get a moment to confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. What a gift that is. What a gift that is. Let's not, let's not waste a moment in that. And if you're not a Christian, that's what we want for you. That's what we desire for you. Is for you to know this God, for this Jesus to be big because of what he has done and because who he is. Let's go ahead and end there. Let's pray. Well, Father, we want to just take a moment again. And, and I just want to acknowledge that, that you, you're a big God. In, in my own heart, it's just I'm tempted to belittle you, belittle your work, to let the gospel just be the entryway 
to the Christian life, but not just a, the hub of the wheel in which my whole life turns around. God, we need help in that. God, I pray that as, as we just end our time in the word, that you would allow these words, this Christology, just to, to take a little bit deeper role within our soul. And God, if, if there is somebody here that doesn't know you, that, that you've just allowed them to see you for who you are, God, I pray that you would just encourage them. God, you would allow them to just take that step of obedience to Jesus being Lord and, and tell somebody today. But God, for every single one of us, God, our prayer, my prayer, is that we would walk out of here loving you far more than we first walked in. Thank you for your word. In your name we pray. Amen.